I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 1 this morning as I was standing back there listening to the praise team lead worship and hearing you guys sing. Um, I was reminded of in the Gospels, Jesus' triumphal entry when the Pharisees and Sadducees said, you need to tell these people to be quiet. And uh, Jesus responded with, if they don't praise me, the rocks are going to cry out. And so we, we praise the Lord along with creation. And as you're turning to Matthew 1, um, I'm going to brag on Jesus like I do every week. Um, yesterday evening, our friends at 1040 Global hosted one of what they call their global fellowships. So it was a gathering of people from various uh, ethnic backgrounds, various faith backgrounds, but with a very Christian emphasis. And our friend Patris talks through the gospel and shares the gospel there. And uh, our praise team was able to lead some uh, Christmas carols at this event. And it's such a surreal experience. There's, there's so many things about that that you just... You know, you're sitting there and you're just overwhelmed with emotion, but to hear people who are practicing Muslims and practicing Hindus sing, sing words like, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. And I sit back there and I hear them singing that and I was just thinking to myself, you know, I truly believe that many of you someday are going to be around the throne room of heaven singing the praise choruses of Jesus with us because of this ministry. And so that was just incredible. Um, also, on Friday evening, so Scott Conover, one of our interns, hosted his first off-campus FCA event. So he started FCA at Hyatt's Middle School just up the street here um, about three months ago, and, and that's starting to take off, averaging about 12 to 20 students a week, which is incredible. He had seven students here Friday night for FCA Christmas movie night. They were all middle school girls. So as you can imagine, I've heard, I wasn't here because I'm not stupid, but uh, no, I'm so thankful for the adults that helped him out and, and helped chaperone that. Just incredible what God is doing there. FCA wasn't there three months ago, and now it is because of his faithfulness to the gospel. And then one of my favorite stories happened this morning. So this lady emails me Friday. She says, I got a mattress to donate to the Finding Hope Center. I said, all right. I said, when do you want to bring it? She said, can I bring it Sunday? And so we set a time, eight o'clock this morning rolls around. They show up. It was literally one of those, if you've ever seen the Casper or the Nectar or the purple mattresses, they come in those boxes. It was brand new. The thing was brand spanking new. And she drops it off. And I'm like, man, that's like a $700 mattress, never been opened. What happened? Let me, let me talk to you about how Jesus works real quick. She said, somebody stole my credit card. They ordered themselves a brand new mattress, accidentally delivered it to my house and not their own. <laughs> she said, I called the company. And I said, do you want me to mail it back? The company said, nah, find a nonprofit to give it to. We'll just use it as a tax write-off. So now we have like a brand new Casper mattress to give away this week to someone in need um, because a thief tried to steal a credit card. And our God is so big that he can be like, not on my watch. And I love it. I love it. So God is working. He is moving. And we get a front row seat to his activity. I hope you never get over watching what Jesus is doing. Matthew chapter 1, if you'll stand with me in honor of reading God's word, we get to start my favorite season of the year, Christmas. We're going to start in verse 18, perhaps a familiar story to many of us, but every year we read these stories, and I hope you never lose the wonder um, that is associated with Christmas. God's word says this, the birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they had come together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. And so her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
And she will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Verse 23, see, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but he did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. Lord, I pray that you would breathe fresh life on familiar stories today. God, I pray that this Christmas season, Lord, we would not just view this as uh, something that we do, some of the mundane traditions that we have. But Lord, there is wonder in Christmas that the God of the universe chose to come and rescue sinners like us. That's the Christmas story. God, would you open our eyes to your truth today? Give us open and willing ears to hear from you from this passage. Soft hearts, Lord, not just to hear, but to receive your word and, and obedient hands and feet to live out the truths that we encounter in your scriptures today. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Well, one of my favorite Christmas traditions and I've learned some of you don't have similar ones to me, but one of my favorite ones is taking my family and going down and cutting a Christmas tree down. We like to go to the Christmas tree farm, cut down a fresh Christmas tree. We come back home. We spend the whole afternoon and evening decorating the tree and decorating our house. We actually got to do that last week. And growing up, some traditions that many of you have, I've learned this this week. I've asked so many in our church, do you go get a real Christmas tree? And everybody's like, no, we have a boxed one. Y'all are weird, okay? But I had that tradition growing up. My mom, one of my favorite things to do with my mother was the Saturday after Thanksgiving, I can remember her pulling up the boxed Christmas tree from our crawl space. The thing was wrapped in duct tape. The box was ancient. You all probably have one of those too. But I loved setting that up in the living room with my mom. We'd spend the whole afternoon together just decorating that tree. And as we were preparing for this series over these last several weeks, I, I began thinking about just this simple question, why the Christmas tree? That's why we got this title, O oh, oh Christmas Tree. I mean, you can see in our church, we have a couple of Christmas trees that we've set up. I'm sure if I came to your house, I might see a Christmas tree. You go to any store this time of year, we see Christmas trees everywhere. So why the Christmas tree? Why do we put these trees in our homes every year as kind of the pinnacle symbol of what the Christmas season represents? Let me set the stage here for, for why, and then we're going to look at Matthew 1 here in just a second. If you look up the history of the Christmas tree, and this will make sense is why I'm giving this to you here in a moment, you'll see that there's so many origin stories of, of why we have Christmas trees. Some are pagan. I encourage you, do not read those. Some are based in Europe, in Germany. There's so many stories as to why we do this, but one of my favorites that I found recently was a story of the great Protestant reformer, Martin Luther. You probably heard him before recently on, on Halloween, October 31st, otherwise known as Reformation Day. It's when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door, and he's like, look, we got to start following the Bible and not what Catholicism was teaching during that day. Martin Luther's a famous figure in church history. But the story goes that one evening around Christmas time, what we celebrate as Christmas, that Martin Luther was walking through the woods near his property. It was a cold winter evening, and he was preparing for a sermon that he would be delivering relatively soon. And he noticed on that dark, bleak, cold winter evening that off in the distance was an evergreen tree standing by itself. And it said in this, this story 
that Martin Luther could actually in the distance see that evergreen tree and through the branches of the tree, he could also see the stars that were lighting up the night sky. And Martin Luther saw that tree and he was reminded of this simple truth that when sin had cloaked our world, it was dark and it was dreary and it was destroyed. That the gospel stands firm as the central figure in the midst of all of that, reminding God's people that there's hope in the midst of darkness. So what Martin Luther did after he saw that tree, he went home, he grabbed an ax, he chopped that tree down, and he ended up bringing that tree back into his home for his six children to see. Because what he wanted them to understand was, despite the conditions around us, the gospel still stands tall and the gospel stands firm. What he ended up doing is with that tree there placed in their living room of their home is he took some candles and he strung them together and he put them up on that tree and he lit those candles. Don't recommend doing that these days. That's dangerous, by the way. But he lit those candles on that tree and he did that so his children could see what he saw in the woods that night. But he also explained to his children with that tree there in their house, he said, you know, kids, um, why is this tree here? Number one, it's a reminder of the gospel. When you look at these candles, I want you to be reminded of that star that led those wise men to the birthplace where where they found Jesus. He wanted this Christmas tree to be this reminder of God's faithfulness, that when sin had ravaged the world, God still had a plan. In the bleakness and darkness that sin has caused, that God still had a plan. And what's interesting is if you study through Christian history, that that's kind of the starting point of the Christmas tree. But Christians have continued to put things on their trees to remind them of the gospel. Let me give you a few examples. The red glass ornaments that many of you likely have on your tree. You know those were symbolic of Christmas? The red of the ornament of the blood of Jesus to remind us that it's through his blood that we can be saved from our sin. The reflective coating on that bulb is the reminder that when we repent of sin and put our faith in Jesus, that we're to reflect him back to a lost world. Often Christians would put bows on the ends of the branches of their evergreen trees, reminding us that through the gospel, that Jesus brings together people from different places, different ethnicities, different whatever it is, social or economic classes, and he binds us together as one family. When we place those lights on our tree, it's the reminder of that star that that led those wise men. I read earlier this, I didn't know this was a thing. Early Christians, true story, you can look this up, would put figurines of babies on top of their tree as a reminder of the baby Jesus that was born in a manger. I don't know if anybody does that nowadays. I thought that one was kind of weird. The rest are pretty cool. That one was kind of weird. But think about it. Often people would put a star on the tree. Why? Star of Bethlehem. Many families, my mom always put an angel. Why? It was a reminder of the angel that announced the gospel for the first time, that you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. You see, friends, every aspect of our Christmas tree points us back to the gospel, that we can have hope in Jesus despite the bleakness of winter around us. And what I want to do this Christmas season is look at these familiar stories to remind us of them. But also, I want to show you the point of application every week is going to be this, how these stories point to your Christmas tree. So that like I do every evening when I sit down in my living room next to my tree, I can glance over at that and be reminded of the gospel story. That Jesus came into this world to save sinners. And the gospel is everywhere, even on our Christmas trees. 
Let me give you three quick points real quick uh, from Matthew chapter 1. I hope these are helpful for, for you as we look at this familiar story. But point number one is this. We see an interrupted plan. An interrupted plan. We're looking at here in Matthew 1 of the Christmas story from Joseph's perspective. Next week will be from Mary's perspective. And then week number three will actually be from the shepherd's perspective. But in Matthew chapter 1, we're finally introduced for the very first time in all of Scripture to two important historical figures, Mary and Joseph. And Matthew writes this gospel primarily to a Jewish audience, and he's highlighting for us in these verses of how the Christmas story unfolded from Joseph's perspective. A little side note if you didn't know this, each of the gospels, four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were each written to a different specific audience. So Matthew, as we're going to point out here a few different times, was written to a primarily Jewish audience. It's why Matthew in the Christmas story references the book of Isaiah towards the end of our passage. Why? Because the Old Testament mattered significantly to the Jews. He refers to Joseph as son of David. Why? Because David was a significant historical figure to Old Testament Jewish people. You'll see in the book of Luke, it was written primarily to a Greek audience, who the Greek audience, they were all about um, finding knowledge. They, they wanted to know more things. That's why Luke is the longest book in your entire Bible, in your New Testament of your Bible. Luke has more verses in it than any New Testament book. He wrote more of your New Testament than any other author. You ask most Christians, who wrote most of the New Testament? What do we always say? Paul. It's not true. Luke actually wrote the most in that book right there. Why? Because he wanted to show so much knowledge, so many things could be known about Jesus because he was writing to a Greek audience. You think of the book of John. John was written primarily to everyone. That's why John highlights Jesus as this God of love. He wants a relationship with you. He wants to know you. Every one of them was written to a different audience. But look at verse 18, and it talks about how Mary and Joseph were engaged to be married. Watch this, verse 18 again. The birth of Jesus came about in this way. So he's telling the Jews, here's what happened. After his mother, Mary, had been engaged to Joseph. Pause. Depending on your translation of the Bible, your Bible might say engaged. Your Bible might have the word betrothed there. That's a better word, and I want to make sure we understand this. If this is familiar to you, you can check out for the next 90 seconds, okay? The word betrothed is not engagement. That's one thing I don't like about the CSB Bible translation is they put the word engaged there, because that's not what's going on here. Betrothal in this time period was not the same as, as engagement. And marriage basically took place in, in three different stages, um, arrangement, betrothal, and then ultimately marriage. Here's how it worked. Imagine that you got a daughter, like I do, Sophia. She's wonderful. And imagine that me and somebody else in this church decide that Sophia, someday when she is of age, is going to marry this young man. That's how it worked. It wasn't up to Sophia. Like, I got to determine which one of y'all's dads had the most money that I wanted to take from you. I mean, that was betrothal. And so you wanted to find the best husband for your daughter and the best wife for your son. And so families would collaborate together in order to arrange these marriages for their children. And then what would happen is the father's family would actually provide a dowry to the mother's or to the, the daughter's family. It was like an exchange of goods, an exchange of livestock, an exchange of property. And that was kind of this agreement that they had agreed on. And once that happened and the kids were of age, they entered what was known as a betrothal, not engagement. This was a one-year binding covenant equal with marriage, all right? 
Engagement in this culture, you can get engaged and three weeks later, you're like, you know what? I don't like you anymore. See ya. And you roll out. Betrothal was binding. It was legally binding. It was on the same level as marriage in this Jewish culture. And the reason they did it is because they would bring these two young people together and they wanted to ensure that they weren't going to be unfaithful to their spouse. And so they would live apart, separate homes. The husband or soon-to-be husband would prepare for marriage. He would prepare a house. He would prepare his career. The wife would, again, be faithful. And then after that year, they would bring them together where they would ultimately be married. But in Jewish culture, if you were found to be unfaithful during that year betrothal, that was the equivalent of getting a divorce. It was, it was not just like an engagement where you can just move on. This was serious stuff to the point where if the wife was found to be unfaithful to her husband and she ended up pregnant with someone else's child during the betrothal period, Deuteronomy 22 actually said not only would she be divorced, but the then betrothed husband had the right to go and kill her and stone her. I mean, that's how serious this was. This was how serious they took the marriage covenant. So look now at verse 18. Mary's engaged to Joseph. They are betrothed is what the Bible says. And it was discovered before they had come together. So before the marriage had happened, they'd consummated their relationship that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. Again, this is where the Christmas story starts to get a little bit wild. We know from Luke chapter one, which we're gonna look at next week, that this was a miraculous conception. Okay, so this means that through the power of the Holy Spirit, Matthew 1.18 just tells us that the Spirit of God, somehow this baby was conceived in the womb of Mary. She had not been unfaithful to Joseph. God did something miraculous in her. And people ask us this all the time. Um, how? Like, how did that happen? It did. Yeah, but does the Bible say how? Yes. Holy Spirit came upon her. She was with child. Yeah, but how? Holy Spirit came upon her and she was with child. Yeah, but like, what did that really look like? The Holy Spirit came upon her and she was with child. You see, one of the beautiful things about the Christian faith is we don't have to explain everything to, to believe what God said. God said it, okay. We don't have to explain all of the intricacies of what was involved here. No, God said this happened and it did, and, and we're okay with that. We have faith in that. So Joseph finds out Mary is with child, and what's his response to this news? Well, he'd likely been preparing their home. He's, he's hit with this major interruption. Mary is too. We're going to see that next week. She was going to be his wife, and now she's pregnant. And from all indications here in Matthew chapter 1, Mary had not tried to explain this to Joseph. That's what's fascinating to me. All we know is that Joseph discovers that Mary is now with child. So what does he do? He intends to divorce her secretly. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But I asked myself this, this week. Why didn't Mary say anything to Joseph? Like when she found this out, Luke chapter 1, heard from the angel, knew that what was inside here was from the Spirit of God, why didn't she go sit Joseph down and try to explain it to him? Wrong question. Do you think he would have believed her? I mean, can you imagine as, as a man, let's just talk to the guys in the room, if, if your spouse came to you and, and explained that, hey, baby, um, just... Hanging out. Angel, God, baby. <laughs> I mean, imagine from Joseph's perspective, what, what, would, what would we even say? And I think Mary, here's, here's what I had written down in my notes. 
Uh, I think Mary trusted God enough to know that her words were unnecessary to convince Joseph of what happened. She left that in the hands of God. And she trusted God enough to be able to step back and go, you know what? I don't have to explain this. No, my God is bigger than this situation. And he's going to take care of that for me. And I love verse 19. I want us to see this here. If you have an ink pen, I want you to circle a couple things here. I love what verse 19 says about Joseph. Scripture does not tell us very much about Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. But what it does say about him is significantly remarkable in the overall story of God's word. Look at, look at verse 19. So, jo- so her husband Joseph, being a righteous man, circle righteous man there, that tells us something about Joseph standing with God. There's not a ton of people in the scriptures that we read that phrase about, that they are a righteous individual, but we read that about Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. Second thing, notice this, and not wanting to disgrace Mary publicly. That shows us something significant about how he viewed this young girl. He could have and had every right to, according to the law of God, to take her, divorce her, and stone her, which in our culture, man, that seems chaotic and like a mess, but that's what God set forth in the covenant of marriage here. But Joseph decides differently. He says, you know what? I'm not going to disgrace her publicly. She doesn't deserve that. So he decided to divorce her secretly. You see, what's interesting to me about Joseph is we see a man who we only have a few verses about in the whole Bible that walked out his faith and walked in a position of grace with this young lady. And friends, here's what I think is interesting. Um, This is the only verse in our entire Bible that we have that assigns a character quality to Joseph. And what does it tell us about him? He was a righteous man. So many other biblical figures, we hear so much more about them. So much descriptors about who they were, good and bad. Joseph gets one verse about who he was. And what's it say? He was a righteous man. Man, what an application point for us today. If they wrote one sentence about you when you passed on and your story was told through generations, what would that one sentence say about you? Would it say you were a righteous man and a righteous woman despite circumstances around you? You chose to love other people in a significant and meaningful way. I love that about Joseph. Point number two, we see an interrupted response. So at the start of verse 20, Look at verse 20 again. But after he'd considered these things, Joseph, considering the implications of his decision, does he divorce Mary? How does he do this in secret? What is that going to mean for her? The implications were very high for both of these. But Joseph now gets interrupted by an angel. He goes to sleep one night, and an angel comes to him in a dream and gives him a message. Now, what was going on here? We don't see this happening often in the Bible. Joseph falls asleep. God gives him this clear message. This wasn't an overly common thing. It's interesting. The first two chapters of Matthew, you see this happening five times. Then it doesn't happen again until chapter 27 of this book. So this was a very significant event that God chose to speak to Joseph in a very significant way. So he would know that what was being said was a message from God. What does the angel say? I want to give you four things real quick. First, the angel says, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Why would the angel tell Joseph not to be afraid? What would he to be afraid of? Well, think about this. What was the knee-jerk reaction? She's pregnant. I have to divorce her. But as he's considering these things, and now he gets clarity from God that he is supposed to marry her, what would he be afraid of? Y'all think of the cultural implications of Joseph choosing to remain married to Mary. Think of the, the implications. How would people view him as a man? 
who in that culture, do you, do you think anybody else was going to believe Joseph is like sitting around with his buddies one night and they're playing ping pong? Amen. So like you and Mary aren't supposed to get married for nine more months, but we notice that she's pregnant. And Joseph's like, yeah, dude, crazy story. Angel, God, baby, pregnant, wild. You think any of his buddies are like, oh, that's cool, man. None of them. They're going to think, dude, you are marrying a young woman who has been unfaithful to your marriage covenant. What is wrong with you? The implications for him were gigantic. What about Mary? A young girl, likely most Bible scholars would agree, probably 15, 16 years old, maybe, who culture now viewed as someone who was unfaithful to her up-and-coming husband. She would have to wear that stain likely the rest of her life. You can see in the scriptures and other places in the Gospels where Jesus is talking to different folks and they bring up this situation. Like your mom was not faithful to your father. What's going on here? I mean, Mary was going to have to wear this on her sleeve the rest of her life if Joseph chose to stay with her. The implications were big. What about for Jesus? And that's not, that's, not, that's not your dad. That's not your dad. I mean, the implications were huge. And so the angel tells Joseph, Joseph, don't be afraid, man. We got this. There's a bigger plan at play that you don't fully understand right now. Do not be afraid. You take her as your wife. Number two, the angel said that the child she was carrying was from God. Miraculous conception. You can read about that in Luke chapter one. This is the first time that Joseph is actually hearing about it. And here's what I'm going to say it again. The scripture does not explain the miraculous conception at all. In the Old Testament, all we see is, behold, virgin will be with child. New Testament, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. What's the result? Mary was with child. He was the Savior of the world. What do we do with that? Yes and amen. That's where we leave it. We don't have to explain it scientifically. We don't have to do anything like that. I read something this week where they were trying to explain how it happened using lizards. Apparently, there's a lizard that can get pregnant by itself. I'm thinking to myself, what? It takes more faith to believe that than it does to believe what God said about it. God said that she was pregnant, therefore she was, and she was the avenue through which Jesus was brought into the world. Third, she'll give birth to a son. Some theology books might refer to this as Jesus was known as the God-man. My friend Joe Veal always says it this way. You've heard me say this before. Jesus was 100% God. He was 100% man at the exact same time. The only 200% being to ever exist. He was always God. He was always man. And he existed in both at the exact same time. The God of the universe, for some reason, taking on human flesh for our sake, to die on a cross to forgive the sin death that we couldn't because he was born of a virgin named Mary. Number four. He will be named Jesus. This is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. You know Joshua, the, the predecessor to Moses. Joshua in the Old Testament, that Hebrew name, name means God saves. In the New Testament, his name will be Jesus. What does it mean? God saves. And then notice what the angel says, verse 21 of Matthew 1. That Jesus will do what? He will save his people from their sins. That was his mission and his name reflected it. Acts chapter 4, what does it say? There's one name under heaven by which you and I can be saved. What is it? It's Jesus. There's only one that carries the title, authority, and power of this name, and that is Jesus Christ, the God-man, son, son of God, born of a virgin Mary, to forgive your sin and my sin. Jesus saves. I love in verse 22, a couple more things here I want us to see. 
that Matthew starts quoting stuff that would have been significant to that Jewish audience. And he shows us here that often interruptions are part of God's plan for his people. You see, because 700 years before this event occurred, so roughly 9,000 years before us sitting in this room right here, God spoke to and through a prophet named Isaiah. And in chapter 7, verse 14 of Isaiah's book, he said these words, See, a virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. You see, 700 years before this, God God told us this was going to happen. God said, this is my plan. This is how this is all going to work out. Watch. See, the virgin, that's Mary. She wasn't unfaithful to her, her wedding covenant. Not at all. This was part of God's plan. She was the person God chose to do the miraculous through. She will become pregnant. That's the miraculous conception by the Spirit of God. We don't have to explain it because the Scriptures doesn't explain it. She will give birth to a son, Jesus. That's the God-man, the sinless Savior, sacrifice for our sins. They will name him what? Emmanuel, God with us. I love that. God left heaven for your sake and for my sake. He promised it 700 years before it actually took place, and now it's coming to pass. The interruptions were part of the plan, and Mary and Joseph had a front row seat. Last point is this, the embracing of the interruption. The Bible says in verse 24 that when Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. And what did he do? He married her. He married Mary. He wakes up from his slumber, from this vision that God had given him, and he does what God says to do. That's a reflection of his righteousness. I don't know about you, but how often does God tell us to do something through his word? And you and I are like, I don't know. Gotta weigh this out, see how this is gonna work out. See, man, there's a lot of big decision here. You know? What's Joseph do? Marry her. Joseph says, All right, let's roll. Like, this is what God said to do. He doesn't question, he doesn't delay, he trusts God, and he married that young girl. And here's what's significant I never noticed this until this past week. Their betrothal was not over. They still had time in their betrothal where culturally and according to Jewish law, Joseph could have said, I'm gonna wait it out. I'm going to see how this thing plays out. And at the end of the betrothal, then I'll marry her. What does he do instead? He breaks the culture to do what God commanded him to do. He broke these culturally significant things to do what God had commanded him to actually do. Embracing of the interruption. And Mary gives birth, we see at the end of this chapter. And what did they name this little baby? I love this. God saves A little baby born in a manger on the outskirts of Bethlehem, God saves. And the reminder for me this week, y'all, has been this, that this story never gets old. That it can invigorate our hearts to the significance of what Jesus is doing. And this story should never get old. And what I've been praying, and I've been doing this in my life, just practicing this every evening, It says, I've read this story that when I go home at night and my wife and I are maybe sitting down to watch something on television or my girls are sitting there playing and I'm sitting next to our lit up Christmas tree. I try to think back to to this story specifically this week. And I saw some things on our tree that maybe you'll see on yours this week. I saw red ornaments on my tree. And in my mind, you know what I said to myself? Jesus saves. And that red ornament reminds me that Jesus saves. I saw a sturdy evergreen tree 
sitting there in my living room. And you know what I was reminded of with that? The unwavering faith of a man named Joseph and a young girl named Mary who chose to remain steady despite what could have happened around them. They said, you know what? We're going to stand firm in what God said. We will believe God and we will live out our faith because God said this is true. He said this was what happened and we're going to remain firm in that. I saw a little angel that my daughters had made a few years ago at the ornament party with their grandmother. And I heard in my mind as I looked at that, I thought to myself, do not be afraid. You see, I, I saw all these various things. We could, I could go through so many things on my tree, but you know what I was reminded of? My Christmas tree screams the gospel, and that's why it's in my house this season. So many other things distracting and wanting my attention this Christmas season like yours, but I just want us to remember that simple fact that your Christmas tree in your living room or wherever you put it is screaming the gospel for your family. It's pointing to these familiar stories to remind you and I that God came to rescue us from our sin. And there's no greater news in the universe. Let me pray for us. Father, what a day. God, thanks for your word. God, I pray that we wouldn't become hardened to the familiar, but you would invigorate these stories with new life, reminding us, God, that in these stories we see the redemption of humanity. We see the solution to the sin problem. We see a Savior named Jesus. And God, I pray that this simple reminder from Matthew 1 and the reminder from the Christmas tree would be used as a catalyst in each one of our hearts this next week. That at the end of our days, Lord, when we, when we sit down and putting our feet up and we look over and we see that Christmas tree, that we'd be reminded of the gospel. We'd be reminded that we serve a God who did not leave us alone in our sin, rather a God who came down for us who came on a rescue mission for us. And when we choose to repent of our sin and put our faith in him, we can have a restored relationship with our God. That's Christmas. Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray now as we sing that it's just a sweet, sweet sound through the corridors of heaven, giving Jesus the praise that he and only he deserves. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen. Church, let's stand as we sing. Thank you.